Genesis chapter 1, Eric teed it up last week. We're going to dive in today and look at verses 3 through 31, and it's a chunk. So um, you don't even need to turn there. What I'd encourage you to do is just sit and drink it in. Listen to it as it was originally um, uh, intended to be communicated. Genesis chapter 1, beginning with verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth across, across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness. 
And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. And you shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth. Everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening. And there was morning, the sixth day. Thus far, God's word. Well, in the summer of 2013, my family was blessed to take a trip to England, a two-week trip to England, the first four days of which we spent in London. Uh, Of course, there's a lot to see in London, and at the very top of our list was the British Museum. Uh, and of course, you want to go to the British Museum because everything is in the British Museum. Um, uh, its permanent collections contain 8 million works from every continent of the world and go all the way back to, to man's uh, earliest days until the present. So we couldn't see it all, and so I went to Google, and I asked, Google, if I only have one hour at the British Museum... What, what should I see? And uh, Google dutifully answered. Here was, here was Google's answer. On the ground floor, you need to see the Rosetta Stone, Assyrian lion hunt reliefs, and the Pantheon sculptures. On the upper floor, the Lewis Chessmen, the Oxus Treasure, the Royal Game of Ur, the Mummy of Katabet, the Samurai Armor, and then down on the lower floor, the King of Eif, which is a masterpiece of African art. And so upon arriving, we, we dove in and saw all nine of those things. Now, we did linger at the Rosetta Stone because it's the Rosetta Stone. I mean, it's the, the key to unlocking the ancient hieroglyphics. And uh, we loitered a bit at the mummy of Katabet because it's a mummy. And mummies are funky and... As a former funeral director, I have to say, it was a great embalming job. I admire whoever uh, wrapped that old boy up. But otherwise, you know, we went to each one of these nine things. We stopped, we regarded it, and then we moved on. So you may wonder, how, how did you take this? How did you retain it? How did you savor it? How did you enjoy it? Well, a couple of ways. Uh, one, at every place we stopped, we took a picture. And wherever there was literature, we grabbed some. So I remember one day after getting home, I I took the picture of the Rosetta Stone and I blew it up. And I I sat there just gazing at it, gazing at its its beauty, marveling at the minds that unlocked uh, the meaning behind all of those little symbols. 
And then with this information uh, that we took from everything we saw, every place that we'd been, it's a lot easier once you've seen something to read and understand what's in front of you. Well, our uh, trip through Genesis chapter 1 today is going to be more like a walkthrough, a quick walkthrough of the British Museum as opposed to an in-depth examination of each of its comments. Further, it's going to be shaped by what's on the page, what we read here this morning versus what's not on the page. So you may wonder, even when Eric was preaching last week, is there a gap between verses 1 and 2? Or today, how long were those uh, days, uh, six in total of creation? Or further, how old really is the earth? So what I mean to say by all this is this sermon is going to be shaped by what God wants us to know and not necessarily what we want to know. What he wants us to know, what he knows we need to know is right there in front of us in black and white. And so we're going to pay attention to what, what is here. Now, a quick sidebar. <coughs> um, to be sure, in this chapter, there are matters on which... Christians differ. Christians who love God and exalt Jesus as Messiah. For instance, um, the reformer John Calvin and the blogger Tim Challies both believe in literal 24-hour days of creation. While the church father Augustine and 20th century evangelical icon Carl Henry believe otherwise. Now, that said, Two things on which I'm sure they would all agree, among a number of other things, but two things in particular. One is that the Bible is truth, God's truth, and that what's recorded here happened within history. So uh, Genesis 1 in particular, 1 through 11 in general, are not a collection of Hebrew folklore. Uh, rather, these things actually occurred in time and space. So just as uh, Christians tend to graciously disagree on eschatology, you know, how the world will end, uh, I think that we should be equally as gracious concerning how it all began. And uh, this and other matters actually can be found, should be found on a website. I'm going to see if Kenny has texted me back. No, he has not texted me back yet. Um, on, a, on the Grace website. So if you'd like more information about any of these things that I've mentioned and stuff that will come up in ensuing weeks, there will be a page with links and then references to which you can go to read more about this. So I guess the question then is, what are we going to look at this morning? And what we're going to look at is exactly the title of the sermon, which is God's Very Good Creation. God's very good creation, beginning with God himself, uh, who appears time and again in these 28 verses, and then his creative acts, which he declares to be good, 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 very good. And then we'll look at the climax of day number six, not the climax of the creation um, story altogether, <clears throat> but the climax of the six days, and that is the creation of our multiple great-grandparents, the first man and woman. So I'm trying to keep this from hitting my beard here. 
Um, and I just have to say also before we dive in that <clears throat> I think it's helpful to note, important to note, uh, as we begin this series, really as we consider the very beginning of the Bible, which is the story of redemption, this is the very first thing that God wants us to know. When it comes to the gospel, it all begins right here. It's the foundation of uh, what we'll be looking at in these first 11 chapters of Genesis. It's the foundation of the book. It's the foundation of the Bible. It's the foundation of world history. It's uh, the foundation of understanding ourselves. In fact, how we approach these verses here is kind of like uh, teeing off at a golf course. It's all about trajectory. Those of you that golf know exactly what I mean. If, if, if you hit a bad golf shot, that ball may only be two feet from the tee, but it's already on its way to the woods or the lake. But a good golf shot, whether it's two feet or off the tee or 200 yards down the fairway, as long as the trajectory is, is straight, well, you are in good shape. And so how we view these verses dictates how we view everything else that follows in the Scripture. So let's begin by looking at the centerpiece of the chapter, which is not something, but rather someone. It is God himself. And we see here that he identifies himself as Elohim, which is the plural form of the Hebrew term El, which means God. And because <clears throat> the word means more than one, uh, Elohim bespeaks plurality within the Godhead, which really shouldn't surprise us because we were introduced last week in verse 2 to the Holy Spirit, right? Who was uh, in King James parlance brooding over the face of the deep. Well, in our reading of the passage uh, just a few minutes ago, you could tell that God's name comes up a lot. In fact, it comes up 33 times in these 28 verses. And it, it appears uh, like a pair of grammatical bookends. It props up the whole section. So you get it in chapter 1, verse 1, with God created. And then you get it on the back end in chapter 2, verse 2, with the inverse of this, he created God. So he's featured not just as a powerful being, but he is a creative being as well. And so God's creating throughout Genesis chapter 1, front and back and everywhere in the middle. Let me just give you a, a, a quick tour through exactly what he's doing. He's artistically inventing, thoughtfully speaking, chronologically working, progressively proceeding, decisively naming, analytically evaluating, graciously blessing, poetically describing, and satisfactorily approving to the highest degree. In fact, it's really interesting that when you get to the end of the Bible, God is praised as creator before he is praised as Savior. Revelation 4.11, For you, O Lord, created all things. 
uh, when we confess our common faith through the words of the Apostles' Creed. How does that begin? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That's right, a good Lutheran there in the front row remembers that. <clears throat> so we, along with the cosmos, we owe him our very existence. And that's worth stopping to think about for a moment. God is over everything. He's over everything. And he is subject to nothing. As were the capricious pagan gods who were popularly worshipped at the time the book of Genesis rolled off the press. So Elohim betrayed the popular view of God back at the time Genesis was written, and he betrays the popular view of God today. About six years ago, there were a couple of professors at a southern university. They uh, wrote a book called America's, <coughs> excuse me, America's Four Gods. And uh, I've got all kinds of information here about that book. But it's essentially the four different ways that Americans view God. So I'll simply sum it up by saying you have 28% of Americans who view him as an authoritative God. You have 22 of Americans who view him as a benevolent God. Uh, 21% view him as a critical God, and 24% view him as a distant God. In fact, based on the uh, uh, credentials here, uh, most of us would probably fall into that demographic category. It's really interesting. Uh, read, I'm sure, because it does talk about how men generally think, women generally think, people of color generally think, those who are formally educated generally think about God. There's something for everybody. But while these views are sociologically interesting, they are of absolutely no value biblically or theologically. They're, they're of no help uh, to us in, in growing in our relationship with the Lord. Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing not by way of our word concerning God, what I think about him, how I feel about him on a given day, what the people group uh, within which I grew up thinks about God. No, it, it, it comes by way of the word of God concerning himself. Period. So when God comes up in this first chapter of Genesis, what's he saying about himself? What's he doing here? In our descriptive survey from just a, a few moments ago, uh, it can be summed up as follows. God is at work. He has uh, rolled up his proverbial sleeves, and he is working. He's bringing order, in verses 3 through 31, out of the chaos in verses 1 and 2. So he's forming the formless, and he's filling the void, and he is effortlessly expressing that, speaking that into existence. And furthermore, he is definitively declaring the cosmos, the, the created order of things, to be good. Not in some pragmatic sense, not because uh, he made this in order to do that and because all these things do what they're supposed to do, that it, there's a, a good end to it all. No, these things are good because he's good. 
Whatever God speaks into existence is good because God is good. He only makes good things. So it's interesting to note that what God says and does in relationship to what he says are inextricably linked. Words matter. They matter to God, and they should matter to you and me. The inescapable importance of speech and meaning is hardwired right into who we are, no matter how hard we work or to what lengths we go to try to disengage them, which has become the great American pastime, especially in the last 25 or 30 years. Well, I didn't really mean that. Well, I know you heard me say that, but uh, dot, 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 something else. When the Tigers won the World Series back in 1984, players, as they are wont to do, uh, began scrambling to negotiate, renegotiate their legally binding contracts. So the Tigers did that, all except for the uh, MVP of the World Series, a fellow named Alan Trammell. Some of you know who Alan Trammell is. In 1981, Alan Trammell had signed a seven-year contract. And so when the Tigers win the World Series in 84, um, instead of breaking that, he honored it. And he said this, I know other players passed me in salary, but I gave the Tigers my word. What we say is an expression of who we are. And Alan Trammell is a a bracing example of how that ought to be. So that's the first thing, and the main thing, really, of importance in this chapter, the introduction of a good, sovereign, creator God. Now, the next thing at which we're going to look at is um, uh, the thing to which God gives his attention, and that is his his creative work. And we're going to look at it from three different angles. If it was a pinata, we'll whack it from three different angles here. And uh, the first angle is in terms of its symmetry, its ordered symmetry. So notice that the six days of creation are divided into two complementary sets comprised of three days each. Now, what do I mean by complementary sets? Well, Take a look here. Notice that on day one, God created light. While on day four, which is the first day of the second set, he creates the light bearers, right? The sun and the moon and the stars. On day number two, um, God created the expanse. While on day number five, he created the inhabitants of that great expanse, the, the sky and the sea. On day number three, he created land and vegetation, while on day six, which is the third day of that second set, he created land animals and human beings. Now, the Hebrew scholar Umberto Casuto says this, this numerical symmetry is, as it were, the golden thread that binds together all the parts of this section and serves as a convincing proof of its unity. Uh, The cosmos, that is to say, are not some uh, random kind of 
creation that just popped up out of a, a primeval celestial placed bog. No, rather, it's an ordered expression of our creative God. Second angle from which we want to view creation is a scientific angle. Now, I'm going to use 21st century words to describe what was happening here in Genesis 1. I don't think these words uh, betray what's happening on the page. You'll have to be the judge of that. Consider this, that upon the creation of the earth, the tilt was set at 23 degrees. Now, that varies within a degree or so, uh, depending on the rotation and where we are at a given point around the sun. But if it was substantially off, we would lose our seasons, we would enter another ice age, and ultimately we would lose life altogether. Um, If the moon was just a little closer to the earth, all of our continents would be daily inundated with water. If the earth and Mars were reversed in their positions, the inner solar system would, uh, according to Scientific American, go haywire. Uh, Mars would sometimes uh, fall into being the second planet around the sun, and if apparently little inconsequential mercury were removed from the equation altogether, it would really throw things off. In fact, Mars would be, as it were, jettisoned into deep space. So the cosmos were not simply laid out in an orderly fashion, but each part was exactly placed and set according to to God's specs. Third angle from which to view creation is according to the numerical symbolism. I think you'll find this interesting. The most apparent number in this account is the number seven, which is, of course, the number of days in the entire uh, creation narrative, and it's the biblical number that equals perfection. So, Notice how God uses this number to accentuate the perfection of his work. Seven times we read, and it was so. Seven times we read, God saw that it was good, yea, very good. Twenty-one times, which is a multiple of seven, we read the word heavens, and we read the word earth. Uh, Thirty-five times, also a multiple of seven, we read the word God. Now, along with the number for perfection, we also pick up the number 10, which is the number, the biblical number for fullness. So 10 times we read, and God said, bespeaking the ample and extensive abundance with which he spoke creation into being. So all of this labor in its symmetry and its science and its numerical exactness was done by God, not with dispassionate precision, but rather with warm-hearted delight. It's one of the beautiful things about creation. In fact, you can go to the book of Job, fascinating little phrase in Job 38.7, where uh, God poetically describes his uh, creative acts occurring when the morning stars sang together. 
can almost imagine him uh, creating against the backdrop of a soundtrack. Now, C.S. Lewis picked up on this image in The Magician's Nephew. And uh, you are the beneficiaries of first service last week at La Mirada because I was schooled how I got this story wrong. So I will, uh, I believe, correctly tell you that Polly, by way of a ring, not through the wardrobe, found herself in a yet uncreated Narnia. And it was there that she witnessed uh, the lion Oslan begin to perform his creative act. So Lewis picks it up from there. He writes, the lion was pacing to and fro about that empty land and singing his new song. It was softer and more lilting than the song by which he had called up the stars and the sun. A gentle, rippling music. And as he walked and sang, the valley grew green with grass. It spread out from the lion like a pool. It ran up the sides of the little hills like a wave. Polly was finding the song more and more interesting because she thought she was beginning to see the connection between the music and the things that were happening. When a line of dark firs sprang up along a ridge about a hundred yards away, she felt that uh, uh, they were connected with a series of deep and prolonged notes which the lion had sung a second before. And when he burst into a rapid series of lighter notes, she was not surprised to see primroses suddenly appearing in every direction. Thus, with an unspeakable thrill, she felt quite certain that all the things were coming, as she said, out of the lion's head. When you listened to his song, you heard the things he was making up. When you looked around you, you saw them. This was so exciting, she had no time to be afraid. How wonderful it is that our God, who delightfully and lyrically created the world, spoke that world into existence, uh, did it even for us. We should give him thanks. And not only should we give him thanks, but we should delight in that which he created. Well, we paid attention to the creator. His symphony of creative acts uh, will conclude by looking at day number six. And the creation of man and woman. Now, I, I have said from this lectern before that I'm fascinated with the fact that man and woman and animals are all day six creatures. So we uh, have a lot in common, and it shouldn't surprise us that we do with our furry friends. We read some of those things here in chapter one. <clears throat> so we are fundamentally made out of dust with the animals, though. Uh, we'll find out here in a, a week or two that woman was not made out of dust. Woman is actually drawn from man. So she is a special creature in God's economy. But we feed uh, in a similar fashion as the animals. We, produce, we reproduce in a similar fashion with a, a similar blessing as well. So I think we owe the animals a high degree of allegiance and even affection. Uh, God has placed them under our care. But here's how we're not like the animals and they are not like us. We are created in God's image. You and I bear the image of God. That's what makes us different than animals. Now, you've heard that we're created in God's image. What 
exactly does that mean? Well, there's volumes uh, that have been written on this, but let's just, again, focus our attention on what we can know about that from Genesis chapter 1. And the first thing we see is that God communicates with man and woman. Uh, concerning other aspects of creation, he, he may speak about that aspect of creation, or he may make a pronouncement over creation, but to man and woman he speaks directly. Number two, God considers man and woman to be equal, equal before himself. Now, that's not to say that man and woman were the same or are the same. Equality does not um, uh, diminish or, or even do away with our differences, especially those which are anatomical and, and chemical. Jim Boyce put it like this, women are superior to men at being women, and men are superior to women at being men. But as persons, man and woman stand on level ground before God. Number three, God makes man and woman stewards of his world. He creates, and they take care of his creation, which leads to the fourth thing. Man and woman become symbols of God's presence on the earth. So they are uh, his representatives, his, his vice regents, if you will. In fact, concerning this, Nahum Sarna wrote, this awareness inevitably entails some awesome responsibility and imposes a code of living that conforms to the consciousness of that fact. Well, one example of this is you can't murder an animal, right? Because an animal is not created in the image of God. You can only murder a human being. As Derek Kidner puts it, bearing the image of God requires that we take all human beings with infinite seriousness. That's why there was a march in Washington just, what, a day or two ago? Sanctity of life. And why all sorts of people were marching a week ago yesterday in cities all across America. I'm not entirely sure what they were all marching about, but I do know this. There was a very strong element within those marches whereby uh, persons felt and feel like they're being treated less than their fellow human beings, other human beings. So um, uh, we all bear God's image. We, we are all to be taken with infinite seriousness. And as precious symbols of God's presence on earth, this is the fifth thing. Uh, man and woman are unique to every other living creature. L listen well to this. Plants and animals, or rather plants and trees, bear fruit after their kind. Fish and animals are created after their kind. But man and woman are uniquely created, right? There are no variations with man and woman as there are with uh, 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 plants and trees and fish and fowl. Be and because we are unique, we are unified. We're unified. There's no person or people group that, complain, that can claim superiority over another. No matter how different we may appear, we all have the same set of multiple great-grandparents. And in that way, we can truly say, uh, whether we're uh, among the company of God's people or not, that we are all children of God. So, before I uh, bring this thing in for a landing... I do want to address the elephant in the room. 
And it's simply this. As Eric pointed out last week, uh, Genesis is a book of beginnings. And this morning we've looked at the beginning of uh, uh, the cosmos and our own race, the human race. But uh, we live in a much different world. Our world, our persons, do not represent what we see here on the page. And that's a difference that uh, between now and then becomes very apparent every time uh, there's an earthquake or a fire or a flood or wherever there's famine or drought or disease. And it's most apparent and most appalling in the way that men and women who were regally created by God, crowned by him with glory and honor, Psalm 8, 5, granted by him dominion over creation, Psalm 72, 8, reject his person and pervert that which he created to be good. In fact, that's what evil is, isn't it? it, it it's the perversion of good. And of course, as a result, we rain down pain and heartache on ourselves, on one another, and this world in which we live. In fact, the Apostle Paul provides a representative list of the way that we, we do these things in Galatians chapter 5. And if nothing else is clear, this is, we are all under indictment. So what's our hope? Well, a glimpse of it uh, is implicit even in this morning's passage. Because while the Spirit moved over that which was formless and void, in verses 1 and 2, another member of the Godhead is the one through whom that formlessness took shape and the void was filled. In fact, the author of Hebrews refers to him as the one through whom God created the worlds. In Proverbs, he speaks of himself as uh, being... Uh, There, when God drew a circle on the face of the deep, made firm the skies above, established the fountains of the deep, assigned to the sea its limit, marked out the foundations of the earth. The Apostle Paul tells us that by him all things were created in heaven, on earth, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him and In him, they all hold together. (laughs) In fact, at the beginning of that section, Paul tells us, he, this one through whom it was all made, he is the image of the invisible God. We know him as Jesus, who is uniquely able to redeem what we have ruined. So that we who have been born in the image of the man of dust, wrote Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, might also bear the image of the man of heaven. Whereas Paul says in Colossians 3, be renewed in the image of our creator. One writer puts it like this, and with it I conclude. He who flung the stars out into the unfathomable expanding universe while orchestrating life in the irreducible complexity of cells in our body, he will act on your behalf 
if you come to him. In other words, he will repair that broken image of himself in you. He, he will forgive you for your, your, your rejection of him and the ways that you have perverted his good creation. The writer goes on. He'll turn your night into day with a word. He'll reorder your broken life with a word. He'll bring form out of chaos with a word because it is his specialty. Let's pray. So Lord, we sit before you this morning and we recognize the brokenness not only of this world but of ourselves. And we know where we have transgressed your law and we have marred your creation and we're sorry. So we pray that you would have mercy on us and remind us that you have restored by Jesus the image of yourself in us. But for those who have never enjoyed a restoration, for those who have ever enjoyed a new creation, we pray that today would be the day that the world would be made all over again for the one who wants a repaired relationship with you and their fellow men and women. And we ask this in the only name by which we can pray, the name of Jesus. Amen.